Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Machination Log. We're here with another book. It's been two months since it was assigned, and like three years mm -hmm. since we promised the last one. Yes. Patrick. What? The stand? Yeah, it was really good. <laughs> Kim, how's it going? Good, thanks. Kim, give yourself 15 seconds. Uh, my name is Kimberly Reyes. I'm an industrial engineer, and I thought it would be fun to read Moby Dick with everybody. She and was wrong. <laughs> I did not hate it as much as Patrick. We, we have a very... Uh, we have every conceivable take <clears throat> at this table right now, I'm pretty mm -hmm. sure. Uh, Ryan? I love this stupid book. I fucking love this book so much. <laughs> oh my God. This book is great. It's fantastic. And um, and everyone should read it multiple times in their lives. I, I agree with all of that. I don't know that I love it quite as much as you do. Yeah. No, this is my top five book. Top ten books of all time. Top wow. ten. Top ten books of Did all time. Did you just read it for the first time? No, this is my fourth time through twice on audiobook. So I've read it six times in total. Wow. Like recently or like ever in your yeah, life? Yeah, I read it again recently. Uh, last time I read it was probably five, six years ago. Oh, okay. Yeah, Did you like it the first time you read it? Uh, yeah, so when uh, so I started reading seriously and when I was about 15 years old, I discovered Kurt Vonnegut and I realized that like reading could like be about something other than like bullshit. And age, What was the age, sorry? Uh, 15. 15. I read House 5 for the first time and then I read everything by Kurt Vonnegut up until like his later stuff. So I read like five books and Kurt Vonnegut in like a month and they were amazing and great. And I read Moby Dick first time when I was about 17, 18. I read it on my own. And I was really blown away by it. Um, and I didn't rate it as much as I do now, as it's kind of like had a chance to like seep into me. Um, but it's um, really, really great. And I think that Melville is one of the best American writers of the 19th century. And uh, my, the other ones I would put up there would be like Nathaniel Hawthorne and, and Jack London. And, um, it's all coming together. Yeah. Okay. But if you want, um, <laughs> but if you want another great book by, uh, by Herman Melville that is much, much smaller, read Billy Budd, which is I, I like almost as much as this book. Billy Budd's a fantastic, fantastic book. But So Patrick, when did you start liking fiction? I don't know. I guess when I could learn to read. When, when was that? I was like five or six, maybe younger. What's the first book you loved? Oh, man. I don't know. I think, you know, I, I really like book series because I don't like the story ending. Okay. Um, I think the first book series I ever got really into was Animorphs. And, you know, I was at the age okay. where Animorphs was written for. Uh, <clears throat> but you like you would say that you, like, read seriously when you were reading Animorphs, maybe? Like, no. I mean, like, reading it seriously, no. It's, it's okay. for, you know, just fun. You're not trying – I wasn't trying to learn anything. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but is, is there a, a point do – you, do you believe that fiction has something to teach you? Um, I, I think it has something to teach other people. I okay. read to enjoy things. Interesting. Okay, I cool. read enough to learn in my job that mm -hmm. I, I don't want to read to lear learn for fun. Interesting. I read the news to learn, but I don't read fiction to learn things. Kim, when did you start enjoying the novel? Uh, I, like Patrick, have been reading for a long time and I've always liked it. My parents read a lot to me and my brother, mm -hmm. and so I grew up loving to read. I don't remember, like, any first, like, really. True loves. Yeah, well, I mean, like. Harry Potter, of course, but like that wasn't like the earliest one. That is not enough course on oh. this podcast. Oh gosh. <laughs> wow. All right. Um Yes, Harry Potter. I won't say of course, but to the Wait, many what? who agree with me. What? We'll get into that later. Yeah. I've oh, never I've never really? read them. Yeah, oh never my god. Read it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, saw, I watched right. the movies. They were good. Oh, oh that's okay. a step. A step all right. in the right Loves direction. Loves Moby Dick, hasn't read Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you're going real down real fast. <laughs> 
Yeah, my, um, I think I've covered this on the podcast before. I didn't really like fiction until I was about 26 um, when I read a book by a guy named Kyle Gold, who none of you have ever heard of, who wrote a book series called Out of Position, um, which is a set of furry romance novels. Uh, They're not that good. How do you know we haven't read those, David? (laughs) I I do. I know you haven't read them because I only sort of know about them. You don't know my life. (laughs) I I can take some educated guesses about it. Um, I can't recommend them. But I really liked them. Yeah. And what was weird was that was sort of the latch key because my parents read to me too. And that did nothing. I didn't enjoy <laughs> I didn't enjoy fiction at all. Huh. Until I had like this weird moment where I actually cared about a character. And I'm still very systems oriented. I still like character arcs. Mm-hmm. That's why Star Wars, I have a very specific reverence for the way a lot of Star Wars is put together because Star Wars cares much more about the arcs of its characters than about its characters itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but... It wasn't until I hit that point, it actually opened up books like Slaughterhouse-Five to me and Moby Dick. Like, if I had read Moby Dick when I was 23, I wouldn't have liked it. Mm -hmm. I only like it now because I have this weirder context and appreciation that was unlocked um, sort of on accident. Um, Which brings us to the book in question. Moby Dick is not a traditional story. I think that's safe to say. Um, Even though it is one of the great American novels... We'll put great in quotes for the sake of at least one person here. Um, <laughs> this book is about every, this book is a mirror. Mm-hmm. Like this book is trying to tell a story and it's about a man trying to tell a story in story form. Mm-hmm. The chapter titles allude to this, the way that it's set up alludes to this. I mean, the story part of this book is the last three chapters and there are, I don't know exactly how many. I don't have it in front of me, but at least 130 of those. Mm-hmm. It was like 137, 136. Yeah, and only the last three. <laughs> the first day of the chase, the second day of the chase, and the third day of the chase mm-hmm. are the actual story he's trying to tell. Mm-hmm. You can jump in at any time, Kim, if you want to say something. There were a couple that were became important for those last three chapters, like when Queequeg got sick mm-hmm. and, like, you know, things become relevant later on. It's all important. (laughs) But if you were telling the story of what happened on the Pequod, Mm -hmm. it's all preamble. Yeah, I was like, nothing happens. Nothing happens. (laughs) They got a whale. That one got away. Nothing happened. They stole a whale. That was funny. (laughs) Nothing happens. And everybody's dead. Okay, cool. Well, you skipped the part where we learned all about whales. Yeah, those were my favorite parts. (laughs) (laughs) Did you know that whales are fish? (laughs) You know, know? (laughs) there are two schools of thought. That's what I learned. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I learned. Not actually mammals. I I was wrong all along. The scientists think they're mammals, but the people who really know, the real way, this this is also my favorite thing about Ishmael, is he's absurdly defensive. Like, he has has this streak where, you know, he he sets himself up as just being, you know, a a relative, he's not, like, well off, but he is well learned. He is a man of letters. He's a school teacher. Mm -hmm. And he's setting off to do a rough and tumble thing to like prove himself, but he doesn't ever address it in those terms. He Sounds just says a lot like Herman Melville. It's almost like it's just an autobiography yeah. <laughs> with flowered up a bit. Yeah, sure. We, I mean, we can we can get back into that because that's <laughs> that's just important for writing novels. But and it, it ties back into it's weird, Patrick. Your your enjoyment over information attitude toward books also probably informs some of this. I mean, the idea that this book is autobiographical is not 
a coincidence most novels are. Yeah. Well, especially in, in the 19th century context, right? So like, like I mentioned London, Hawthorne, um, even Walt Whitman to a, to a large degree as well. And then Melville too, right? Like they all kind of tie in elements of themselves into that novel. And there's a kind of like certain Americanness, right? A certain like self-centeredness, a certain egoism of being an American about like my story, my, my story is worth <laughs> being told. And not know, as a passenger, yeah. not as a captain. <laughs> but, yeah, exactly. So, um, but I think that, so I just wanted, before we kind of get into the guts of this thing as well, I just wanted to pose maybe a general question about reading, which is how hard should a novel be to read? How hard, sh I mean, do you guys like novels that are hard to read? And I don't mean like, you know, I mean, uh, just in the sense of like, in a way of like having to figure something out, um, how hard should a novel be to read? I, for one, was glad that I listened to this one on audiobook mm -hmm. because a lot of just the older diction mm -hmm. was, like, I know that if I had been reading it in, like, physical book form, I would have stayed on the same sentence for a really long time being like, wait, what is he trying to say? Sure. And But in the audiobook, I'm just in the car driving, and I kind of just get the sense of what's happening <laughs> yes. based on his tone of voice, and then he moves on. I'm like, did it really matter that much if I didn't understand that sentence? No. All right, move along. I'm not going to rewind. And so I think that, like... If we didn't have that form of consuming books, it would be more important to make them easier to read. Absolutely. But in, the, in that format, I was fine with the reading difficulty for this one. Well, and I am a staunch defender of audiobooks as well, right? Like when people tell me like, well, have you read this? And I'm like, well, I've, you know, listened to the audiobook. And then they're like, well, like, we didn't read it. You know, <laughs> that's fucking horseshit. Like, read, There's I mean, people like that. Oh God! Well, I don't hang out with them, right? Like that's a real, that's like a hard break in a relationship. With I, yeah, anybody. I always say I was like, I read it. I was like, well, I didn't read it. You know, I listened to it because I yeah. listened to so many audiobooks. Absolutely, but it's, it's just easier to say you read it. Well, but, um, I think yeah. as well, right? Like I consumed the, it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. But, the, but the spoken, <laughs> but the spoken, the spokenness of the written word. You, um, I've learned some things about novels that, and I particularly like listening to older novels because you, you be it's you begin to understand and adapt to the, you know, um, the obsolete vernacular, right? You begin to adapt to the idea that this, that people perhaps spoke like this at one time. Mm. Um, you know, so even if you've never read Dickens and you find Dickens very trying, um, listen to David Copperfield, listen to a good version of David, David Copperfield. That thing fucking just, just lights off the page in audiobook. It becomes such a breeze to get through and the charm of everything kind of comes through a little bit better once you kind of get past the fact that, you know, because when you're reading it and the sentence lasts three pages, you're like, it's like, you're like, Jesus fucking Christ. And, but when it's put into the natural rhythms of how someone would, would speak, mm. um, it becomes much, much more accessible. And in a weird way, I would, you know, like, especially for older novels as i.e. Moby Dick, um, and even Nathaniel Hawthorne and other ones I've mentioned as well, I, I, I would, I'm a staunch defender of the audiobook. I really mm. think that's awesome. What's weird about uh, Hamlet runs into this when we, when we covered Hamlet. I tried to read Hamlet before I watched the play, and I even after watching the play, I didn't really understand it until I had a competent rendition of it put in front of me, mm -hmm. which the Kenneth Branagh movie adaptation is. It is a version of it that flows. The thing, and I, I recommended to you guys that you specifically get the Frank Muller narration of Moby Dick. Yes, Agreed. and that that matters tremendously because the other guy that I listened to, aside from sounding mostly like a computer, like he didn't know where the sentences ended. The, I went back and physically read Moby Dick after listening to it because I tried to just, Kim, as you said, I, I went in and tried to read it. And the problem is that when you're not used to the way that, and I actually, I sort of write the way Melville does. So I figured I'd have a natural advantage there, but I didn't. 
I would get into a sentence and then I would just dig into it, trying to make sure that I understood how it went. But when you listen to Frank say it, and there are certain things that he glosses over and he's, it's, it's not perfect, but it's, it's a really pretty impressively good rendition of something that he, he had to not, he couldn't have an ear for because it's not of his time. What it allowed me to do on the subsequent reading, which I would recommend, you know, I, I will not be so snobbish as to suggest you haven't read the book having not lis- um having not physically read it but mm-hmm. instead listening to it there is something to the ability to bask in the words on the page mm-hmm. where they're not in time mm-hmm. um which helps a lot with this book but without having the narration behind it um I didn't feel like I had the pacing right. Mm-hmm. Like the way that he reads the sentences feels natural. And you can bring that to reading the actual physical words. You're just allowed to stew in them, um, which is cool. Like that's, that's a thing that was not available to people who didn't have servants to read them books at night. <laughs> well, but as well, I've had, you know, significant others that I've read, I've read books too, as I've read them as well. And like reading a book out loud and speaking it yourself on the page, there's a kind of amazing you know, kind of spontaneity that happens as you as you read a book out loud and even to another person or even to yourself. And um, I do that to Moby Dick consistently. And you know, I was like, like, and so you know, many a night has my has my significant other fallen asleep to the soothing tome of, of Melville. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, it was um one of my favorite chapters. The right came, whale. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god. And um, so uh, give us a hailing, Ryan. No, absolutely. So um, he's like, he's like, oh, I'm ready to go. Yeah, no, I'm ready to go. No, um, so uh, let's get into this. And I wanted to hang on one one thing before. Before we do that. Okay, yeah. Patrick, rip into this book for 15 seconds. I just need to know. I just thought it was really boring. Mm-hmm. Uh, I told you I, I read, I watch movies, I watch TV shows, play video games to be entertained. Mm-hmm. If I'm not entertained, it was a waste of time. Okay. okay. The book is just boring, and that's the cardinal sin for media for me. What What would you distinguish as the worst parts of this book versus what you perhaps at least nominally enjoyed? No, uh, I'm, I'm fine with you just well, complaining about I'll, it. I'll, oh, that's yeah, no, I mean, yeah, no, focus on the bad. If, but, if you took out all of the whale anatomy and mm-hmm. cetology bullshit, it would be it would be a four out of ten instead of like a two. Okay, but there was hours of that book mm-hmm. spent talking about his own personal folio of what the different whales are, right? And then two back to back chapters going over different. Heads of two different whales. Yes, and a bunch of other stuff that I could have just. Oh, a contrasted view. It did. Yes, <laughs> I felt like it added nothing to the story that he knows a lot about whales. Okay. Um, I, you know how they broke down a whale. I thought was very interesting. Yes. In fact, when they were doing that, I was like, I actually, this is a question I didn't even know I wanted answered until right now when they're doing right. it. That was cool. So like the actual sailing life, I like those parts, but mm-hmm. like it's just monologues about whales was. A waste of time. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I will say too, like, like you're saying, some of those parts about whale anatomy, like that never came up later. Like mm-hmm. some of the parts, like I mentioned, like it's like ah, it seems like boring or like useless at the time, but then later it becomes important. But like, yeah, other parts, like two hours about whale anatomy, <laughs> never really came into play. Mm-hmm. Like you could have had like two sentences, and that's fine. The way it comes into play again is if you if you center on this all being preamble to telling the story, he's trying to without having the moving picture at his disposal, he is trying to give you a visualization, mm-hmm. and he he covers this in several chapters. He has several chapters, which again, in his like his self-respecting way, he has several chapters where he is absurdly critical of various depictions of whales, (laughs) historical and scientific. Yeah. He talks about how none of them fully capture the majesty (laughs) 
which it, it is sort of what he's trying to do. I mean, that's and unsuccessfully as everyone must be. Yeah, his epic shade throwing on whale engravings is yeah. quite, uh, is quite <laughs> like fun. Like the gold leaf yeah. of the whale. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. But I think so one of the things I, I tend to run up against which is that I like I I like challenging books cuz I'm a cuz I'm an asshole and uh, I like to pretend <laughs> I'm smarter than I am and you know so you um We're going to get to pinch on. Yeah, worry. exactly. Good. 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 Um but I like I like I find that a lot of people who in, uh, who like to enjoy reading like the idea of the author not being there, right? Like the the role of the author is to write in such a way that their voice melds into the telling of the story to where I don't have to think or I can simply absorb the story information plot as it comes to me without having to to go deeper in, you know, in between the lines, so to speak of the novel to really get at what this thing is about. And I tend to, especially in novels that have a more rhetorical flair where the meaning is, can be obfuscated within, within the, within the words and within the, how the story is told. And one of the reasons this novel is very famous is because Ishmael himself often, I mean, at, at, there are three or four chapters where it actually goes third person. I don't know if, you've, if you guys found that out, but there are parts of this where like Ishmael himself like talks as if he's not even on the ship at times as well. And um, Well, there, there yeah. are several scenes that are impo- he, he's impossible for him. Oh. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, an omniscient narrator. Like, like the guy holding the rifle outside the captain's cabin. Mm-hmm. Nobody could have known that. Yep. Yeah. Starbucks yeah. banter on the yep. ship he's not on. Yeah. yeah. And so we, you know, um, a lot, you know, very famously, right, like the um, the unreliable narrator, as it's, you know, termed in literary studies. And, you know, Ishmael himself as being central to this character, oftentimes people, and when my, probably my third time through the novel, um, I began to think about a lot about Ishmael and who he is and what he's trying to tell me with this tale. And, um, some of my favorite sections this time around was when he's almost just purely kind of like speculating in like the vastness of what he's up against. And so my favorite chapters this time around were when he's talking about the masthead, when his job is being up at the very top of the sails and you're just looking out for whales. And the chapter just like just like goes off the rails and suddenly he's like floating in space and trying to describe this feeling to you of being at the very top and being rocked by the being rocked. Uh, at the masthead, which is being rocked by the boat, which is being rocked by the tides, which is being rocked by God, and feeling this like de- detachment from where he's at, and um, and then I I just find that there's some like beauty in this, right? Like there uh, because things that are beautiful are always so naturally striking to us, and yet it is when we find something beautiful, we want to know more about it, and we begin to study every detail about it, and we be wanting to know more and more and more about it. And what becomes simple to us because it's so immediately arresting becomes complex. The more we stare at it, the more our love grows for it. And um, that's what a good book does to me. And something has to be really craggy so I can get into the nuts and bolts and the details and the dark recesses of something before I can really truly say that um, it endears and and grabs a hold of me like that. And Moby Dick does that because the book's so fucking hard to understand at points in time, right? Like (laughs) it is weirdly inaccessible and it's not to say that I read everything like I understand every line or, or every, understand purely when he's trying to describe something very practical in a, this really high-flown language that he uses. Um, you know, I pass over what I pass over, but I get what I get out of it. And what I get is enough to, like, satisfy me in the, in the interim. And for people who enjoy, I think, fiction for enjoyment's sake, um, 
the world building aspect of Moby Dick is what I really loved as well. I mean, I don't know if you guys probably realize this, but um, if like, you know, technology ceased tomorrow, um, we would like with Moby Dick in hand, we could probably put together a whaling ship. You know what I mean? Like, like yeah. seriously, I mean, do you know, I mean, we know. Ship riding excluded. Yes. We'd have to find the boat. Yes, we'd have to find the boat. <laughs> we'd find some ships. But like, um, there's a chapter on the disassembling. Equipment. Yeah, yep. there's a chapter on disassembling a whale for consumption and how mm-hmm. they deal with it. Like, I mean, the, the amount of like, <laughs> practical knowledge in this um, is one of the things I find so enriching. And it's one of my favorite things about it as well. Like Patrick, like that is like really high up in my enjoyment of like being informed um, and that filling this fucking picture of life on the Pequod. Um, the, the little details about like the, the carpenter who is also, I don't know if you guys noticed, but the carpenter is the dentist and like, there's like all kinds of crazy shit describing the tools and how they're, they're good for both performances. It's, um, it's really quite amazing. And I, I like his emphasis that the carpenter's not a smart man. No, absolutely <laughs> not. Anymore. He's a laborer. Yeah. <laughs> and that the smartness may have in fact detracted from his ability to do there. He has several points in this, and this, this is a relatively common ivory tower complaint that being intelligent is an impediment to doing the truly important things in life. Yes. Like uh, carpentry. The only, one of the only things that no one seems to, believe uh smartness does not impede his writing yeah which is that's not a coincidence i don't assume where do we want to go do we want to chronologize this do we want to pull out segments how do we want to go about this let's just kind of start before we get on the pequod so it's ishmael and and Quequeg, right like hanging out in the same bed for a while <laughs> yeah. um nice even and, before that yeah he's like is this guy gonna eat me he's like he's actually kind of cool well, and he like travels like from wherever he was that new place and it's raining and he's like, I just need to sleep. Like, yeah. <laughs> And then there's that fucking sermon in, in like that sermon chapter. I actually really liked the sermon. <laughs> oh, man. I like more, even more than the sermon, the pulpit. Yes. Is fantastic. Oh, you yeah. to climb the ropes to like get <laughs> up there. Yeah, it's like, it's like really an weird. old sailor. <laughs> this priest has reconstructed a ship yes. for him to exist in in his church. <laughs> and just like the concept of that as, you know, an old man who's too old to do what he loves anymore mm-hmm. has reconstructed it within <laughs> sacred ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just retells the Jonah story. Yes. <laughs> yeah, the sermon was the first passage I hit where I almost skipped it. Yeah, <laughs> and I was like, "No, nah, I said I was gonna read the whole thing, so I'm just gonna sit here and listen to it mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and space out because I could not focus. It was like twenty something minutes, yeah, and it was just I was like, it's this is never gonna end." Have you ever been to a good sermon? I don't think so. Okay. Have you ever been to a church? Yeah. Okay. I've listened to a bunch of sermons. Okay. They do you have the felt, same? They felt the like that one. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's sad. <laughs> yeah. Seeing as you didn't like that one. <laughs> mm-hmm. Kim, have you ever listened to a good sermon before? Yeah. Okay. How long were you uh, a Christian? Are you still a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Okay. Mm-hmm. When's the last time? Because the timbre of them changed recently, and I really don't like how uh, progressive the ones that I've heard recently are. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you still go to a uh, a church that is vehement, but... Um, vehement. <laughs> What, what was word. what was the last good one about? Um, this past Sunday was about like heaven on earth, which is talking about like how heaven isn't just supposed to be like this place you go to when you die, but it's also kind of like bringing God's kingdom to earth 
and like how uh, spiritual things are supposed to impact the way we live right now. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I was going to try to relate that to the Jonah story and then I got derailed because I was thinking <laughs> about how there's, there's a segment where Ishmael uses basically a version of that to justify his extremely homoerotic uh, <laughs> fixation with Queequeg. Where he talks about being a good Christian and he just, he like oh. logics his way. Yeah. I did find that part interesting. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, being a Christian's about following the will of God. And what's the will of God? Oh, it's uh, the treating people how they want to be treated. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he kind of had some. <laughs> we got there. We got there. He kind of had some gaps in there. Mission but. accomplished. <laughs> well, but then, but then, and through that too, he's like, you know, totally uncritical of like Queequeg. And he's like, well, he's a heathen and a savage, but who among us <laughs> is capable of, you know, coming to such judgments? And uh, you know, because Queequeg has all the all of these symbols and little totems yeah. and stuff, yeah, and yeah, shrunken yeah. heads, yeah, the shrunken yeah. heads, yeah. About those. He who hath not eaten another man may throw the first. Yeah, time. I was like, well, <laughs> most of us, hopefully. <laughs> so the church is still around, still doing good shit sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I was not impressed with the last one I heard. Hmm. Which one do you go to? I go to Avalon Church. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. It's like right here? Yeah, like okay. down the street. It's I on, just... on Tanja King. What happened to that? Or, or we'll cut all this out. That's fine. <laughs> we'll cut all this out? <laughs> no, if it doesn't go anywhere. I'm just curious. Because my mom went to um, the hell was St. Maximilian for a little while. Okay. I don't know if you're familiar with that. So um, not like on I think I think my friend from high school used to go there, but I never. It went. was disbanded and oh, okay. integrated with a different one. Oh, okay. It was in a. Actually, I guess, are you Catholic or. Okay, then that explains why you wouldn't know where that yeah. was. <laughs> that makes sense. In my head, those the, they're all Catholics to me. Got it. Everyone I knew was a Catholic. Which, okay. uh, which brand of heathen are you? Um, <laughs> I'm. Uh, my church is non denominational. We used to be Baptist, so I'm kind of in that realm. Oh, okay. Yeah. I've also gone to uh, Presbyterian churches that I liked. Like in Miami, my church was Presbyterian. Okay. Yeah. I always figured I have to go one of two ways, which would be like, like I like this like Old Testament, we're damned and we deserve to <laughs> like, be damned church. You oh, know? the Jewish route. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> like, like, I love, like, yeah, I like so the, synagogues. Right. No, I just, I'd, I'd always felt that like, like God being all powerful <laughs> enough to a point. Right to where you like put a limit on things like Calvinism, you know, has like a limit on like how much good in the world can be done and how many people will be saved. Calvinism is one of the most pessimistic yep, religions. Absolutely, that's still that's, around. Yes, well, wow. uh, once again, limited number because they're not like bringing everybody in because only there's like <laughs> in the whole history of humanity, there's only like a quarter million of us that are going to get saved, oh and God, God already has it figured out who that is. Oh, John Calvin, and they're full. So. Yeah. <laughs> John Calvin is one of those nerds. Kind of like Martin Luther. Martin Luther yelled more, but John Calvin was like, look, guys, I did the math. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not good. No. <laughs> Pulls out an Excel spreadsheet. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> That's basically, well, he's the predestination guy. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. Well, and that, and so, you know, but it, it, it would make sense, right, that there is this, like, to that degree where, you know, horribleness happens and such and, and, and what appears random to us is not random, right? Like, there's mm-hmm. a comfort in that, at least, that, yeah. it, like, you know, this path has been chosen for me and I can trust in that regardless of where I'm at. And the idea that of like God being this like vengeful entity, right? That like, no, you know, God does punish. God is both, you know, the immaculate, but then also all of life, right? There's not like we, like a lot of denominations tend to separate out, right? Like good and evil and them not being of the same essence. And that's not what like Calvinism or even like older Christian traditions believed, right? Like God is, is everything, 
And that includes what we would consider suffering, what we would consider horrible or evil or ugly, right? It's all part of that, right? Like even the wasp, which is the most horrid of all creatures on this planet, <laughs> is of God. Like and not, not the white angle. Well, there's an yeah. experience there. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, yeah. <laughs> I've seen too many nature documentaries to hold the wasp in any sort of moral high ground. So There's the difference between like original creation and like the fallen world, though. I feel like mm-hmm. in the Garden of Eden, like wasps didn't like sting you and cause terrible things right. like before the fall. Well, that, that is, and Kim, I assume you can speak to this, but the the newer wave of Christianity definitely has this good versus evil vibe built into it. The interpretation of the Bible includes the existence of evil as separate from God because God is an aspirational character as opposed to being fully, it's not that he's not omnipotent, but God and heaven actually, that corresponds pretty much precisely to the sermon you were talking about, Kim. Mm-hmm. Heaven is something you are supposed to bring down mm-hmm. to earth. It is not necessarily that it is, um, it's it's not like part of earth and this in totality is God. God is in fact up here mm-hmm. and you are supposed to reach for him. He's not you mm-hmm. in that way. Well, I think one, uh, so yeah, he's not you. I agree with that. But also like we don't have to reach for God because he reached down for us in the Aww. like in well, but that's like what the point of Christianity is, is that like in in Jesus, God was like providing like salvation for humans because we couldn't do it on our own. And so like instead of us like having to try to be good and like do all the work to bring heaven down, he's like, Hey, listen, I'm gonna tell you what's going on. Here's a guy who's my son and he's gonna explain everything. Mm-hmm. Like, here's what's happening. And then, like, Jesus, like, told everybody what was going on. And then, like, God confirmed, like, yeah, that's the guy because he rose from the dead after he was like, yeah, I'm going to rise from the dead in three days. And then they killed him and then he did. And so. So where does Queequeg fit into this? Well. <laughs> or, but, but more importantly, right, like, the, the broader question of being on a boat on an ocean where you have, you well, no, have I, no, con- you're, you're, you're merely steering, Right, like that's like what the, this like the larger thing that happens in this, right? Like, no, no, no I, I definitely want to get back to yeah, that. Okay, I just yeah. want, I want, okay, to, I want yet, to keep okay. the chronology because okay. Queequeg is a fascinating character. Like he is, mm-hmm. he is a, a savage in every possible and a prince mm-hmm. and a prince. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. that's true. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what Kim? What is your read on Queequeg as a character? I liked him. I think that like he had. I mean, he was like a good friend to Ishmael. Yeah, and. Uh, I liked the part where like he just decided he was gonna get better, and then he did. Like I thought that was funny. Like uh, he's very determined. Yeah, <laughs> things go his way. Today is not the day to die. Okay, yeah. like well, I like that he had to get in the coffin to realize it. You know, yeah. he's like not about this. <laughs> not yet. No, not yet. No, yeah. no, don't feel right. Has there been a good movie adaptation of this? No. Okay. Oh. How? Be, How? Have there been any movie How? adaptations? Yeah, there's Would just... they spend all the time on the cetology stuff if they didn't? I'm going to guess they skipped that part. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I like oh. the idea of pulling down a little thing and pointing out <laughs> the whale just be, There would just be a book on, on a table somewhere yeah. that says cetology. That would be oh, their. <laughs> the Coen brothers are equal to that challenge. <laughs> so um, I've what? seen two versions of this one with uh, Gregory Peck as Ahab and the other one with Patrick Stewart as Ahab, and neither of them are good. And those are the two best versions available. Did he grow fake? What? How much facial hair? Not enough. Okay. Not yeah. enough. Neither of them, not I enough. Mean, put a I fake guess, beard on. What are they doing? Yeah, it's a fake beard, yeah. I, and Well, and Stewart's not, he's baby face. He's too literary for it, believe it or not. Like, mm-hmm. like Ahab, to me, always comes off as this, like, visceralness, right? Like, there's nothing, 
the the drivenness of Ahab, you know, the, the image monomaniacal. Of, well, that's <laughs> like there's when the when the first scenes that really demonstrates that is when he's talking about him being on the on the front part of the boat in the ice storm and like how everything how he's like becoming part of the ship itself. He's got his lantern and he's like sternly sit up in his chair and then. <laughs> Like the ocean and the ice are like becoming him and they don't know if he's asleep or not because he never bows his head down. So is he watchful or not? And it, it's really amazing. Well, like I, how- I love I love the way that he I mean, he is one with his ship. Yeah. I, I'll, the, the line is good enough. I found it in time. Uh, this is when Ahab is first spotted. Uh, he looked like a man cut away from the stake when the fire has overrunningly wasted all the limbs without consuming them or taking away one particle from their compacted aged robustness like he he is he is a figure like he's almost a mockery of figurine mm-hmm. in that way um and he's he's an evocative character like there's a reason why his specific um his, his specific act like the peg leg is the easy cartoonish thing to pull from mm-hmm. but every captain is ahab mm-hmm. like every captain in everything like in Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, Barboza is absolutely Captain Ahab. Mm-hmm. Um, some other second example, but that was the most so obvious what, one. What about I mean, Star Trek? Is yeah. there a captain like him? Well, yeah. <laughs> they have captains. What? <laughs> As, this is different. That's space. That's, <laughs> lu- space. that's, that's luxury, <laughs> luxury gay space communism. Yeah. What? The, the whale has been caught in. Is there like a Pequod equivalent in Star Trek? No. They don't know. It's too messy. Like Star Trek's a little too sanitized. Like you said, we won. Humanity won in Star Trek, right? Like we conquered nature. We're at one with everything. And we got rid of what didn't comply. And that's why we hate the Klingons. The guy, no, in, okay, in the new movie, the guy who comes through the space vortex and is like, I'm here to avenge my family. Like he was like Ahab. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the angry guy is like Ahab. Yeah, the villain. villain. (laughs) I mean, he's basically the villain of this story. He gets everybody killed. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but Ahab was the hero. It's, 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 it's a tragedy. Well, we can get to that because there's, is it Ahab or is it Fadala? Mm-hmm. Mm. Is it exoticism point. itself personified <laughs> yeah. that is responsible for the I, downfall of this craft? I had one more thing about Queequeg I wanted to say. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so I liked the part, I forgot about this, at the beginning when they first gone i think it was when they first got on the pequod and there was like some like punk kid making fun of queequeg or something like that and then he like falls overboard and queequeg just dives into the ocean and mm-hmm. saves him after he was just being a jerk to him and i just thought that part was cool queequeg is a noble savage <laughs> as they would call him at the time i think this is the exact right that's the right century it might even be the right decade to call him a noble savage mm-hmm. So the concept of the noble savage is actually much older than I thought it was. It dates back to 1672 by John Dryden in a play called The Conquest of Grenada. In fact, by the 1850s, it was being used sarcastically. So it's entirely possible that Queequeg is a satire rather than a pure manifestation of the concept of the noble savage. Like that's that's 100% the character he evokes mm-hmm. and continues to. Um, I like Peleg and Bildad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I good. like I like their voices in the Frank Muller version. Yeah, <laughs> pretty good. Peleg is irascible, and Bill Dad is there. It's it's a perfect like buddy cop duo. Mm-hmm. And um, the, actually, I guess if I wanted to pull a passage from that, uh, which I'll find if anyone wants to fill air while I find it. You guys got a favorite character? 
There are a bunch. He spends a lot of time describing them one at a time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I liked Starbuck. Yeah. Yeah. I felt sad that, like, in the end, even though Ahab was, like, you know, he was like, okay, Starbuck, you can stay on the ship. I respect you. Like, mm-hmm. you deserve to live. And then he died anyway. Yeah. I'm so sad. He was going to go back to his family. Yep. Should have like, shot Ahab. And he was just like, he was like, I just, oh, his, his like little monologue at the end where he was like, even now, Ahab, you can turn back like the third day, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh, like my heart. Does he going to turn back? Oh, no, he wouldn't. He wouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> this book is really old. <laughs> oh, this is actually pretty good. Speaking of Queek Quag. Mm-hmm. Can't sell his head. What sort of bamboozling story is this you're telling me? Do you pretend to say, landlord, this harpooner is actually engaged this blessed Saturday night, or rather Sunday morning, and peddling his head around town? That's precisely it, said the landlord. And I told him he couldn't sell it here. The market's overstocked. <laughs> That's like the first thing you heard about Quake right? Yeah. yeah. He's like, okay. So That landlord was so infuriating. This is going to be interesting. Like, oh, yeah. He's grinning at all times. Yeah. Like that's, that's, the, that's basically the only description we have of the landlord. He doesn't get his own chapter. But, the, um, but no, this book is so full of gay double entendres. Uh, Quag especially, but there's there's a section. I had a copy of the book that I had all my quotes in, and I lost it. But the one I was looking for is there's there's a section where there's like a barrel of uh, sperm oil, and he's just putting his hands into it, and it has the most just absurdly double meaning bullshit throughout it. It's really good, and I wish I could find it. <laughs> I might edit it back in if I can find it. Where is the thing? I was like, there it is. I like his quibbling about this. Thou knowest best, was the sepulchral reply. The 777th lay wouldn't be too much, would it? Where moth and rust do corrupt but lay. Lay indeed, thought I, and such a lay. The 777th, well, old Bill Dad, you are determined that I, for one, shall not lay up many lays here below where moth and rust do corrupt. This is exactly the kind of writing I want to get into when I'm like 40 years old. Yes, absolutely. Um, this is this is absolutely my bullshit. Yes. I love this kind of writing. <laughs> it was an exceedingly long lay that indeed, and though from the magnitude of the figure it might at first deceive a landsman, yet the slightest consideration will show that though 777 is a pretty large number, yet <laughs> when you come to make a tenth of it, you will then see, I say, the 700 says, like foghorn leghorn. Yeah. <laughs> the 777th part of a farthing is a good deal less than 777 gold doubloons. And so I thought at the time. It's all about the denominator, man. Oh, yeah. Where's the 777? Yeah. That's This is just like a 500 word joke about that. <laughs> Which you get this this book is separated into as many chapters as it is because it's designed to be absorbed slowly. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's not designed to be read from end to end. Pat, this is one of the weird things about moving from the st- whatever chronologically. I think we've done several books between them, but the stand and this book are the two that I'm comparing in my head, not least because it's the last time we were talking into a microphone about it. But the stand is a point to point story with a chronology, and even though this is a chronology. Uh, things are being described, and the philosophy behind whatever is inside Stephen King's head is absolutely secondary to the plot, like things are happening. 
This book stews. This book is, you can literally, you know, you could do a calendar of this just once a day. You just get up, you read, read a chapter, and then you go to work, and then you go to bed, and then you read another chapter because this is your life now. It's just read one chapter of Moby Dick. And it would be a very fulfilling life, at least for me, because we all aspire to this. But, Pat, how fast do you read? Well, you know, I read as fast as the narrator talks because I haven't <laughs> sat down and read a book in years, but I've mm-hmm. listened to, you know, dozens. How many, How <clears throat> big a chunk do you read them or have them read to you? Um, so I start listening when I wake up in the morning and mm-hmm. stop when I get to work, and that's about two hours. Wow. Because um, uh, I have a long commute. Do you up the uh, speed on them? Or do you listen no, one time? No, I, okay. I, yeah, I, I like to listen to the actual, like, <laughs> cadence. When you speed it up, it's like, it's too fast. You miss, you miss stuff. For fiction, I, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I don't fiction. like it. Well, you're supposed to be able. To, you're supposed to be able to enjoy it. Yeah, theoretically, you want to do it at the correct speed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you read, uh, just real quick? Does anybody read a lot of like? Do, is most of the things you read written in the last twenty to thirty years? Yeah. Yes. Okay. All right. I don't know well, if that's true for me. I'd have to think about that. I think most recently, but also I like Shakespeare and like mm-hmm. I've been on a kick. Like before this, I read Lord of the Flies for the first time. Like I'm like trying yeah, to read. Yeah. yeah. And I read uh, The Wizard of Oz. Like I'm reading like older things and that classics. I haven't like read before. Yeah. The like class- the ones that like the other English class in high school <laughs> read that I didn't read. <laughs> so. Well, the, the, there's a sum to be said for the classics too. So, I mean, Patrick, I mean, so describing the idea of like not, that fiction doesn't have a lot to teach us about things, right? Like, I didn't say us. Okay. I just said me. Oh. <laughs> I don't read to learn. I know a lot of people do right, right. with fiction. And I've read a lot of the classics, and I don't like most of them. Right, absolutely. I like Dracula, mm-hmm. Frankenstein, mm-hmm. and Sherlock Holmes. And everything else I've read, I haven't really liked that much. Right on, yeah. All the monsters. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, but um, Dracula's really uh, picaresque, right? Like, but apart, you know, um, some of the journal stuff can get a little tedious mm-hmm. with the relationships and stuff. But you know, the you know that, that romantic kind of like you know, because he's writing that what like eighteen Bram's writing that in 18, 1890s. something like that, and he's going back almost to that Frankenstein era. And Frankenstein is exceedingly. I mean, Frankenstein might as well just be like describing like massive romantic p- paintings from like scene to scene to scene almost at times as well, and that book has uh, some exceedingly beautiful parts to it right like mm-hmm. i remember really good imagery yeah absolutely and i remember reading that in um because i hadn't read it until i was in uh literatures in like valencia this like back in 2000 2001 and those were the things that everybody hated about the fucking novel <laughs> and i'm like this thing's like only 120 pages anyway right like you might as well like enjoy and um especially the ice stuff when they when, they, when they're in the arctic and stuff like that shit's fucking intensely good and um with this one as well, right? Like it just exposes you differently to a lot of what the imagery is on it. Is it like builds it in stages, and you know parts of the ship come alive, and this thing that can't be any you know any much longer than this house, you know, or any taller than than this house as well, has this whole bizarrely contained universe in it. I didn't know that they boiled the whale blubber on the fucking ship. <laughs> Sounds pretty dangerous. What the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> Like they're like they're like keating and boiling this shit. Where's anyway. OSHA? You know. Oh my god! There's <laughs> a fire. You're in the ocean. It'll be fine. Like don't worry about it. Um, no, it turns out fires are real on ships, even when there's water around. Oh them. my god! Um, no, I said OSHA though. Yeah. S H A. 
Oh, like, OSHA, yeah, yeah. OSHA, yeah, yeah. No, come yeah. and check. Is this safe? <laughs> <laughs> no, these guys need a union. Like, something yeah, for fierce. Real. These guys need, if anyone needed a union. That's why they're getting 1777th, you know? No unions. <laughs> well, but, um, but also, too, the code of, uh, the code that I think bizarrely Queequeg tends to be such an exemplar of, right? Like, you know, when a man goes overboard, everyone has a responsibility to save that. You know, you're all part of the whole on this, and Queequeg despite his savagery is mm-hmm. one of the best sailors on the ship, right? Like both technically as a harpooner, but then also displaying that code when the guy goes overboard and he sees that opportunity and takes that takes a risk that it really isn't a risk because Queequeg knows himself and everyone else's part in this. And um, man, this like, it, the, it's amazing how the Pequod becomes this contained little universe, right? Like, um, so all right, so I'm just which I'm, we are now on. All right, good. So, anxiously awaiting. So I have my I have my favorite half paragraph here that I'd like to read, and it was a chapter. It's chapter sixty, and it's called the line, and it describes first of course, of course, it describes the two types of line uh, rope that you could use to harpoon a whale with, and I won't read you with that one. But the last paragraph <laughs> goes like this. Again, was the profound calm which only apparently precedes the prophecies of the storm is perhaps more awful than the storm itself. For indeed, the calm is but a wrapper, an envelope of the storm, and it contains in itself, as the seemingly harmless rifle holds the fatal power powder and the ball and the explosion, so the graceful repose of the line as it silently serpentines about the oarsmen before being brought into actual play. This is the, this is the thing which carries out more of true terror than any other aspect of the dangerous affair. But why say more? All men live in an enveloped in whale lines. All are born with halters around their necks, but it is only when caught in the swift, sudden turn of death that mortals realize the silent, subtle, ever-present perils of life. And if you be a philosopher, though seated in a whaleboat, you would not, if at heart, feel one more wit of terror than you were seated before your evening fire with a poker, not a harpoon by your side. And this, like, intertwined this. I fucking love this line, dude. I, like, like started crying when I'm reading that to, like, my sleeping significant other. And, like, once again, the the envelopness, the the oneness. And it's why Starbuck can't live. Because he thinks he can separate himself from Ahab. Right? He believes that when Ahab goes away, that what he will... What he will bring back will either be his own failure, a dead whale, or his or a death. And no, we're you're all enveloped in this, and Starbuck is 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 intermingled in this struggle as Ahab is, and that I think really beautifully kind of ties this together. Because I just and I have to say this, it's fucking insane being a whaler at this time period, like. Give, get the fuck out of here. What's the most dangerous thing anybody's ever done here? And it's not like the the lamest day on a fucking whale boat. Like, holy yeah, shit. That's like, a, a big nope. Yes. I would never, okay. ever do that. Well, just to our uninformed readership, you have a big boat called the Pequod, but you do not whale in the big boat. No. Yeah. You whale in smaller boats, in teams, going out into this ocean in groups of, you know, little rowboats. Like get the fuck get the fuck out of here. And the whales are bigger than the ship. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Five the, the people rowing and one guy leaning off the side. Yes. One extremely imposing, usually black man. Yeah. Um, who is doing the dirty work of the white male officers uh, at the front of the ship. But the intention is to is to harpoon, to spear a whale so that the harpoon cannot get out of the whale. And there is a rope tied to it, and you are now tied to the whale. Like you, you, t- you willingly 
tether yourself to this fucking creature. So, um, it's like fishing where you're the rod. Yes, exactly. Now I have been in the ocean exactly three times. And it's because I. It is fucking terrifying. Has anyone ever? You live in Florida. I hate the ocean. Well, well, being at the beach is different from like being in the ocean and looking down and seeing nothing. That's the same as being in the ocean. No, that's the ocean, and you're in it. If you look down and see blackness, it's different from looking down and seeing sand. I've the furthest I've been is 18 miles off of shore, and I will never ever willingly go that far off of the ocean again. It is in in like there's like there's shit living in there, and this is what's weird (laughs) is that like to humans, right? Like. It is. It cannot be. It might as well be fucking space. It is so inhospitable to be in the middle of the ocean. And then what appears to you? I mean, it is space with gravity. Absolutely. But here's the thing. It appears to be this lifeless fucking desert. But no, like it's alive. There's fucking shit in it all all, all around you, and everything wants to kill you. <laughs> like, we, we've been to the moon. And we have not been to the bottom of the ocean. Oh my god. Uh, oh my. The bottom god. of the ocean's yeah. a lot closer. <laughs> but the place. the like like taking on this this challenge of what. Uh, of a whaling, mm-hmm. right? With no none of modern contrivances upon it, and being like capable and successful at it is just such a it's 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 insane. It is an, it is the most insane thing, practically. And and despite the fact that Moby Dick is fiction, the factualness of it is what is so striking at times. Like this is what is fucking cra- it like crazy. It drives me crazy every t- every single time I read it. Mm-hmm. There there is a quote related to that that I think. Melville mm-hmm. does a very good job evoking yes. that that danger, um, which I brought up here. This one is in, what, chapter 58, just before the this line. Is, it's a good... Yeah. Consider the subtleness of the sea, how its most dreaded creatures glide underwater, unapparent for the most part, and treacherously hidden beneath the loveliest tints of azure. Consider also the devilish brilliance and beauty of many of its most remorseless tribes, as the dainty embellished shape of many species of sharks. Consider, once more, the universal cannibalism of the sea, all whose creatures prey upon each other, carrying on eternal war since the world began. Consider all this, and then turn to this green, gentle, and most docile earth. Consider them both, the sea and the land. And do you not find a strange analogy to something in yourself? For as this appalling ocean surrounds the verdant land, so in the soul of man, there lies one insular Tahiti, full of peace and joy, but encompassed by all the horrors of the half-known life. God keep thee, push not off that isle, thou canst never return. Oh my God. And I think that what's in, it it just so emphasizes the idea that in the scope of, of life on this fucking planet, humanity is but a refugee of that, right? Like we find ourselves, you know, on the last third of what is barely a livable surface. (laughs) And yet even now, right? Like what is so concerning to us about climate change is that the true nature of the, of life on earth will come and reclaim this fucking haven we have for ourselves. It's coming after us again, right? It's It's going to come for the last 5%. Exactly. It's coming for us. And like, it's, I don't know, man. It's like this, the, the wheels within wheels and, and the ability to like lose myself. I, I, and this is why when I like novels that are so that are hard to understand is that I, I, I truly have this like bizarre existential experience, whether I listen to it or not. Right. Like um, when I, a lot of my friends like fantasy fiction and when they talk about things like world building and I really uh, under, I really empathize and, and love that about my novels as well. And we simply have different ways in which we engage with it. And for me, you know, like being lost in the kind of 19th century insanity of what Moby Dick encompasses um, is 
world building at its best. And I think that opening our minds up to if we like fantasy or if we like our Tolkien's or if we even the Stephen King's, right, which has a, this amazingly um, constructed world for us, right? Like I was like, going to say, what's your take on King? I I I enjoy his I enjoy the supernatural. I enjoy his ability to evoke the supernatural, but he's a little wordy for me. Sorry, but I... <laughs> really, really weird take. So considering you like Nathaniel Hawthorne. Well, uh, hey man, House of the Seven Gables is 140 pages. Like, I'm just confused. No, um, <laughs> some of my favorite, and, and then bizarrely enough, some of my favorite stuff in King is when the the supernatural is more subtext, <laughs> um, like Dolores Claiborne and stuff like that. Like I fucking think he. And as weird as it sounds, and we talk about like what you can learn from this, I think Stephen King has a a very good understanding of the psychology of abuse, and um, and a lot of his stuff is about dealing with trauma and abuse, and um, I enjoy it for that, but I don't like I don't like reading it, hmm. and um, so yeah, so no, it's nothing. That's actually an interesting omission in most of this is that Ishmael's life does aside from the final incident seem to be mostly, it's not post-traumatic at all. Mm -hmm. there, there's no, there's no history to it. It's all this foreboding nothingness. And that actually sort of ties into the way that he is forced to defend himself. So just, all right, just real, real quick. This is a period in time when like infant mortality is like 60%. So <laughs> yeah. like oh my dealing with death is not a, uh, Dealing with death um, is a little bit different than I think what it is today to deal with death. That would just be my initial statement on that. Sure, in the nineteenth century. But there's no there there is no there's none of the baggage mm -hmm. in this book. Like it feels like, and it it makes perfect sense. I mean, we were just talking about what a bitch it must be to be a whaler. Mm -hmm. um, he's going whaling because it's the manliest thing you can think of. Yep. Like that's that's why he's doing this. <laughs> he's he's out here to prove himself. And uh, he has taken a very narcissistic tack in this. He has decided to be the philosopher king of this boat. Um, he spends a very long time doing so, which, uh, Kim, I'm sorry, you, you looked like you wanted to say something. Oh, I was just wondering if, if you were saying, like, if you were talking about his life before he uh, got on the Pequod, or if you're talking about the fact that he's <coughs> writing this after all of the events of the Pequod had finished and he doesn't bring, like, he doesn't let us know what's going to happen by having the baggage of, like, oh, all my shipmates died. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, I, I mean that he, he doesn't seem to have any, um, his entire life prior to this ship okay. seems utterly unimportant mm -hmm. even to him. Like, he, he, he does not see fit to bring it up other than to we know he is some kind of instructor. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's all we know about him. Right. I, I, do we know he's married? Like, do we know anything else about him? I think he's not. So, um, there, uh, is he just an incel? I don't is think that what's going I don't, on? Yeah. I don't think it's mentioned. <laughs> no. In uh, so there's several. You know, uh, there's takes. Uh, there's some hot takes on <laughs> the, <laughs> the literary criticism community. Let me ask a lot of people that he's gay. Yeah. Uh, okay. No. I, well. Um. But that <laughs> there are good reasons for that. Yeah. No. Uh, Ishmael is if three anything, years on a boat with only dudes. Yeah. You know? Ishmael, if anything, <laughs> is open to the. Claps. He is open to the full spectrum of life's experiences. If we could say that. Um. But I think that my, what I think what I would take from it and how the story appears to me as someone who has had a lot of distance from from the experience that he's now describing and whether that means he's an old, uh, cause the, and especially like, especially at the beginning when he's describing the youthfulness, which led him to take this journey upon as well. Um, it is, you know, it seems really like someone who is almost romanticizing that youthfulness that was a part the good of old him. Days. Yeah, no, I think that he, 
he looks back on this as part of the as the prime experience of his life um and he got out of it and that is not something to dwell on in a time when most people died before they were 40 and um he takes that uh with him as well and you know there's um there's a thing about like when that i, I remember i took a developmental uh, economics of development and they talk about poverty like fucking re- like la- like the lowest billion people on the planet like real poverty um, and I remember one of the most striking things I ever remember is he describes about how um, happy people are who are desperately poor um, because there's, you know, like you have to create that internally. There's enough bad in the world as well. And there's a thing about the human psychology that allows us and wants to find happiness in front of that. And it's at its most vicious level in the Western world, we call it like gallows humor, right? Like we talk about this idea that what can be so terrifying and horrible in the moment becomes we, 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 I think I don't I, personally American culture has a hard time dealing with this um, where we talk about people who become jaded about things as well when it's in fact a natural coping mechanism to turn the terrible into something that can be dealt with. And I mean, that's um, that that's a topic with many spandrels that we uh, <laughs> this book is not certainly not equipped to handle. But um, but I think with the help of perspective, right? With the help of time having passed this, the, uh, the, that this is an old man's tale mm. told in an old man's way. And you know, like very much a grandpa yarn, you know, like being told on a knee. <laughs> well, one of the, one of the, the things, heart. one of the things that makes you so, my whale fully. Up. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's talk about whales. You got, you got time? I got time. Patrick. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that makes it so old though, is that it is as in Melville's own world, it's monomaniacal. Right. This, this takes place on a book. It takes it takes place on a book. It takes place on a boat. <laughs> yes. Very different book. Um, it does take place in a book, <laughs> on a boat. Uh, there's just the boat. Every once in a while, they see some other people. They wave to them. Um, Ahab shoves off if they can't contribute directly to the story. <laughs> yeah, they meet some people. He's like, you seen this Has fish? seen the white whale. Like, no. Yeah. He's like, bye. Get the fuck out of here. But my son. Ahab. He's going to give a fuck. Fuck off. <laughs> He's got one goal and oh one goal God. only. No. Well, and, okay, the part of the hilarity of that chapter is the in, entire, entirely practicable way in which one, someone would find someone lost at sea. And Ahab's just like, fuck it. You know? Like, <laughs> like this, have you seen this whale? Yeah. <laughs> but there, there's... Despite the fact, and actually Melville does the a very common thing where he says, "Don't you dare take anything in this book as an allegory. This mm-hmm. all is true and happened and is real." <laughs> like he does, it, a ton of fucking authors do this, but it, this is so self-contained. There's no world outside of this. The only world outside of it is danger and menace and darkness and the unknown of where where's this whale. Like, the world has been so radically simplified. And this is why these stories, the classics, in a way, um, get away with this because they don't have Twitter. Um, (laughs) The world that that we have invented, um, now that everyone basically has a voice at this point, to the extent that term can mean anything, anyone can say anything and anyone else can hear it on accident on the internet... Like this is this is actually way more profound in the world of storytelling than I think it's given credit for. Like you can't write a book about going away because there is no away anymore. And if you were to write that book, it would immediately be antiquated. And this is why a lot of stories they try to do this, where they're set. Uh, you'll, many 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 books are not set now. 
Um, this is a weird thing that came up with. It was a joke about Seinfeld. Is that if if everyone in Seinfeld had a cell phone, Seinfeld could not exist. Would because, not be a show <laughs> because yeah. the miscommunications would just not occur. You would send a text and it'd be done, um, and no, th- th- everyone would know what's going on. You can't have a cool story about not knowing where the whale is if you have sonar. Like, that doesn't work. You have to be left to your own devices. And our devices are so much more powerful than our storytelling mechanisms um, can possibly account for that traditional storytelling doesn't work anymore. You have, you have to be absurdly qualified or universalist in the way that you tell stories. Um, unless they're about very specific, generally oppressive topics, which is why conservatives absolutely hate the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the reason why they, I, I, I understand that I, it, this feels like it's getting away from the story, <laughs> but I, it is sort of what Ishmael wants to do because the thing that's driving him stir crazy on land, he alludes to, but he doesn't necessarily say it is that he wants to be away from all the people. Mm-hmm. He wants to be able to isolate himself so that he can actually be at the center of something, even if it is with, you know, with other people, it's with a defined set of people. Because when he's talking in the very first set of chapters, I don't know if I have a specific, I don't know if I have a specific quote from this. When he's talking about, literally in the first chapter of the book, Loomings, how everyone on their lunch breaks looks out to sea. Mm-hmm. And what is sea in the context of what all these people were doing? They were in the hustle and bustle of being in the real world. The sea represents a vacuum. Mm-hmm. It represents simplicity, even if that simplicity is dangerous. Mm-hmm. I, I think it represented the sea. Was <laughs> yeah. you, you don't I, think I it was like an allegory? I think people read a lot into things mm-hmm. that maybe just aren't there. I saw literally there was a whale called Mocha Dick, real whale mm-hmm. that existed, giant white whale that did exactly what Moby Dick did, mm-hmm. fucked up every ship he met until somebody finally killed him. Mm-hmm. There was a ship where his this sinking of the ship, the Pequod, is modeled right after. Mm-hmm. The entire story is the story of her and Melville on a whaling ship for a while until he got sick of it and literally jumped ship. Mm-hmm. That's it. It's, it's his life fictionalized with mm-hmm. different characters. Yeah, and it's way more interesting than that story. So he told this story I, instead. I, I think you can find metaphors anywhere, no matter how hard you look. And I, I just think it's a story about a fun time he had in life and he made it sound cooler mm-hmm. than it was. So <clears throat> cooler oh, meaning everybody dies. Yeah, that's <laughs> way cooler than everybody just going home. <laughs> they had a giant cool whale uh, whale fight at the end. You know, the whale won. It happens. Sometimes the bad guy wins. Or the good guy. I mean, he's just trying to be a whale, you know. <laughs> They're the ones trying to murder him. He's just whaling around. But that's not a good Filled story. with harpoons, you know. <laughs> that's... There's there's a uh, and what's wrong with that? What's wrong with it just being a fictionalized version of his life? Why does it got to be a metaphor? What? Because the stories are only interesting in their ability to mirror. The Rorschach test <coughs> became famous as a way to accidentally get people to project things onto arbitrary elements. The thing a Rorschach test needs to be useful is it needs to be fractal. It needs to be detailed enough that you can stir it up in your brain to be whatever thing is on your mind. If someone were to give you a square and tell you to describe the square, 
the Rorschach test principle of projection doesn't work because you can see a clear delineation of the square. You may be able to, you may be able to describe its negative space. You may be able to describe the right angles, but it's very limited. A Rorschach test is just an ink blot. It is a shape that can be formed any way you need it to be formed. And I'm not saying that this in some way absolves Melville of being vague or <laughs> of fictionalizing his own life in either a self-aggrandizing or in a pedestrian way. I mean, the story could be more interesting than it is. But what makes this story cool is that it is written with a kind of prose that, for some people, mm-hmm. works quite well. Mm-hmm. And is broad enough, yet simple enough, that you can generate metaphors. And metaphors do have value. They are inspiring, which is maybe the most useful currency that literature provides, is inspiration. Not necessarily to write more, but to do and to think about things. Um, which is why we're doing a book club about this. I mean, if we were just going to read Moby Dick, there's plenty of value to be derived from simply reading Moby Dick. But I'm willing to read books I don't even like, watch movies I don't enjoy, because what we're doing right now, the Rorschach test of sitting in front of microphones and recording that, recording those thoughts, is in itself inspiring and pleasurable regardless of the content involved. And Moby Dick provides a tremendous amount to work with because Herman Melville wrote a big book that though it is about a simple topic, he talks about it at length with flowery prose and in a vague, vague way that he is almost, despite it being autobiographical, uh, is almost not involved in. Like, yes, there was a whale, and he went whaling, and he jumped ship, but that's, those, those are very, very specific details. He had to fill in all the rest of that. Yeah, it was all getting the whales, breaking down the whale, whale anatomy, cytology. Well, right, so, um, I mean, he didn't add a whole lot, except well, characters and everybody dying at the end. Yeah, all the characters, like the carpenter. Yeah, like which are people the, who were probably fictionalized versions of people he knew on the ship. Mm-hmm. As are most fictional characters. Just saying. <laughs> well, uh, so I remember I was at um, I was in a philosophy <laughs> class in undergrad at UCF, and um, so um, go on. Yeah, so, yeah. so um, but it was a class undergrad on undergrad Mar- philosophy. Yeah, undergrad philosophy. It was an undergrad <laughs> on Marx and Nietzsche, <laughs> okay. and um, we were we were in the Nietzsche section, and I remember this um, the student was because um, we had to read as part of like Nietzsche's philosophy, then we had to read about an, a biography of Nietzsche, and um, I remember the. Um, the I you know the student uh, was talking about how you know Nietzsche had, you know they did Ubermenschen we all create our own morality and um, you know there is uh, that is the the true source of power in the world and blah 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 and uh, the uh, Nietzsche's life of course is much more pedestrian than that right like Nietzsche is a fucking bookworm who by all intents and purposes is afraid of women because he's <laughs> intensely shy um, and like everyone in the 19th century is anti-Semitic and um, then spends the last decade of his life in in a basic state of, of uh, catatonia um, because he had a, a, a mental breakdown. Uh, upon seeing a um, a cartman whip a horse in the middle of Turin, and <laughs> so what? That's you didn't know that about perfect. Nietzsche? Oh, I don't know oh, anything about him. Except, oh, isn't he the guy yeah. that says everything sucks? Isn't that him? No, I think um, the right guy. Uh, no, Nietzsche with somebody. Nietzsche's basic idea. Who's the I, everything? Who's the guy that every, nothing Schopenhauer. matters? Schopenhauer. Nihilism. Schopenhauer. Is that him? Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, Schopenhauer is the darkest of dark philosophy. Yeah, 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 Schopenhauer, yeah. not a fan. Everything yeah. sucks, so you shouldn't care. I was yeah. like, oh, all right. <laughs> uh, no, uh, Nietzsche is everything sucks, so you have the responsibility to make it better in your ah, own image. Okay, and, that's a lot better. Yeah, yeah. no. Um, <laughs> like I said, the, the 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 there is a there is a positive non Nazi ish interpretation of Nietzsche that I uh, adhere to, um, but I, you know I, I'm not I'm not qualified. Uh, but regardless, um, so to your point though, right? Like the. The student was saying that like Nietzsche was uh, a bullshitter and an asshole and um, a hypocrite because he didn't, you know, he, uh, how could someone who had the philosophy of the Ubermensch, someone who um, oversteps common morality and creates his own morality in the world and therefore takes on the will to power to do this. How could someone so domestic, so bashful, so unworthy of his own philosophy, how, why should we believe this? And it, you know, I didn't say anything at the time and it took me a while to do this, but for some people, you know, lighting the, lighting the lantern and showing the way is what they could do, right? It's up to other people to walk that path that is illuminated. And in that way, right? Like this is what kind of makes literature, I think, really astounding. Um, took me a long time into my thirties, uh, before I started reading that I started enjoying, uh, Tolstoy and when you know anything about world literature, you know, Tolstoy kind of sits in this, like this fucking mountain right. above you. And, you know, you're like, you know, you're supposed to, you know, you know, you got war and peace, you're in a current, you know, you know, those exist out there and they're famous for being big. Like, I should read them, right? Yeah, you no, know? you're, yeah. <laughs> and, um, they're check boxes. Yes, check exactly. Boxes. But at the same time, um, Tolstoy is a fucking student of the human condition and as well, as well a Christian and his battles with the issue of 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 suffering in the world and my inability to overcome it um a lot so much of what he focuses on is just on that idea and tolstoy himself is a fucking aristocrat who loves poverty and all of these bizarre contradictions that come out of this right the the biography of the man himself imperfectly realized in his life is more perfectly encapsulated in his writings and in that way you know i've heard stephen king is kind of an asshole but at the same time, he displays a sensitivity in his writing that if I think if he came across a fucking wounded animal on the side of the road, he would be incredibly fucking tender to it. You know, like it, there's these, this inability and complexity in human life that literature can encapsulate so much, so purely than the human experience as we live it can, can realize it because we are imperfect and you can... You, but you could spend 10 years writing something like this and make it about as perfect as you could make it. And if you had 10 years to live a day or as, like Groundhog Day, one of my favorite movies, if you had, you know, ten, tens of tens of thousands of tens of thousands of years to make the best day possible, you know, what would you make it into? And um, that's why I love literature. That's why I love literature that tries so much harder than just to be what it's about. And uh, and man, oh man, like like coming back to this and seeing Moby Dick again for like my seventh reading now. Um, just gets me, it just gets me, man. And I find, I find the depths of this thing is never, I never find the bottom of it. It just keeps coming back to me over and over again. And much like what we love, right? Like I'm, I'm sure you have favorite books and you have favorite books or favorite movies. We, you know, we can return back to them and see what we enjoyed, but then, in, uh, but then also usually find something we've never seen before. And that is really, really pleasurable. And you know, I know, I understand that the stand is something like that for you. Right. And yep. Moby Dick is something like that for me and, and, you know, things like that. And so, but that's why we read, right? Like, that's why we enjoy what we enjoy. And that's why we get around to sit around and talk about these things. Cause like, you know, if, if we were sitting around here, something with, that I didn't particularly enjoy and see that, um, 
I could still hopefully respect what I didn't enjoy. Yeah, we we got a saying in law that reasonable minds can differ. Mm-hmm. That's why we have juries, you know, because we don't know the outcome going mm-hmm. in. So people like different stuff. Just because you like Moby Dick doesn't make you a terrible person. Oh, although it's, it's close. Just, it's, it means it's, you have really bad judgment in books. Yeah. <laughs> no. It certainly displays I mean, some tendencies, right? I mean, like I said, I'm sure there, you know, have a lot, I'm sure there's a lot of people who are that if, if they heard this, they would really judge me for saying like he doesn't want he doesn't read to learn. Um and it's just because that's not what I like to do. But a lot of people do. Well and, and that's yet, that's cool too. <laughs> but and yet I don't think you would say that your life is less rich because right. you because you because you read the way you read, right? Like or or read what you read, right? Like it enriches you somehow, yeah. right? And that's I like good stories. Absolutely. And so I read I've read a lot of books that are, you know, objectively like bad books, mm-hmm. but the story's good. So I think a good story can hold up uh cliched or not great writing a lot of times well and um and sometimes right uh as david was speaking about like issues of technology within writing and um and 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 in media i guess right or in stories and how that can um so i think one of the more favorite things that can kind of come from that is like um like philip k dick has anyone ever read or exposed been exposed to philip k dick before a few times yeah a few times so um (laughs) you know he's a he's a futurist and technologist and Mm -hmm. sci-fi writer and what makes his stories is that, like, right, um, instead of going, like, prehistoric in order to make his stories viable, he just manipulates technology to the point where it services the plot really well. <laughs> but yet Philip K. Dick, as an author, is not great, and I'm being nice, right, about this. <laughs> but yet I would fucking read a Philip K. Dick anytime because there's always, like, that, like, you know, that that glimmer in it, you know? Like, I know I'm going to wade through some shit, I'm not going to enjoy it, but there's always something to kind of latch onto with that. and. You know, like there's that's okay, right? Like there's nothing wrong with being exposed to that or finding something like that. And you know, they, like what does uh, Bad Santa teach us? You know, they can't all be winners. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like we're in the closing thought territory from the way that was going. Kim, do you have anything you want to say before we go into that? In general, about Moby Dick or about that? What? I'm d- anything. <gasps> Yeah, you're sitting on the mast. You're on the masthead, you're being swayed by the tides. Ah, of God. We're tying in the book now. Yeah, you're just being swayed by the tides of God. You can't control we, the ship, but you can point in any direction you want. Absolutely. Okay. Um, we we briefly talked about Moby Dick like a couple weeks ago, and one thing that you brought up actually like struck me, uh, and it was that like the story, like we were just kind of talking about how like. There was a whole bunch of stuff that like didn't happen, and then the last three chapters, like all of a sudden, and then it's like everybody dies. Like it was just very like low on plot, and like, yeah. And but like, like one thing you mentioned was that like all of the details and all of like all the things along the way to getting there just kind of like pointed out like, well, it mattered to that guy. Like the like you had kind to of be there. Like I I just like. <laughs> I and it just made me think like yeah like it's just very like isn't that just like all of humanity where like see now you're getting it like it just like (laughs) you know like the things that happen in my life like I can describe them in great detail and Mm -hmm. like you know like I can spend like a long time describing like this one incident that happened to me or like you know the way that like a certain like the you know this like cool sunrise was that I saw or whatever and like in the end, when I die, like, you know, will all of those, like, hours and hours of, like, telling stories about my life, like, 
will they matter to like some random person who hear it hears it like no but like it did matter to me and mm-hmm. it was my life and like all the things that happened to me mattered um and so it was just yeah it just really struck me when you said that i was like yeah you're right like this book like even though yeah we spent hours listening to like whale anatomy and stuff but like <laughs> the like these as far as the book goes like these were real people on a ship with real relationships with each other and like this is like this is this guy's like actual quest to like find this whale and like he was so focused on it and like it was just this driving thing and like he had this thing with starbuck going on he was like no don't do it and like he like still wanted to get the whale and just like it just like yeah like when the book ended the first time i yeah when i read it uh it was just like what that was it are you kidding me but then like once you said that i was like oh yeah like like the whole thing mattered and yeah i just thought i don't know i just really liked how you said that so I don't think it's beneath you to write 20 pages about the different <laughs> kinds of sunrises. <laughs> I think you could do that if okay. you really tried. <laughs> I don't think anybody wants to read a book about me writing legal briefs all day. What? <laughs> so nobody but wants you, to read a all, book. All you would need to do to justify that is to have some cataclysmic event. <laughs> you just need a reason to do it. Well, eventually somebody's going to die, so that's cataclysmic, right? Well, there you go. <laughs> that's a matter of perspective, right? Like, <laughs> I mean, I mean, just because it was somebody's real life doesn't mean it was a story worth telling. I mean, so I'm glad that that added to it for you, but it, that didn't sway me. <laughs> but that's just because you don't have any cool shit that you want to tell everybody about, so you can't relate. Again, it's all a mirror. I mean, my cool shit gets recorded and put on the internet. So. Yeah. <laughs> but no, but I mean... Like but, doing an oral argument at the floor Supreme Court? Pretty cool. But I, but ironically, right, like, of anyone here who will have an impact on the world as uh, or an impact on people's lives, um, I mean, you're 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 going to impact people's lives more than most of us, right? Like people outside of our, because most of what, what, how we'll impact each other will be in the people we know personally and the effect we have on them in our lives. Um, But you play a role, you know, if you will, in society that will have an impact beyond, you know, you're impacting people's lives you'll never meet. Yep. And at that point, right? Like the, um, like meditating on the gravity of something like that is right. Like there, there, that's a, that's a novel. You know what right, I mean? Okay. You know what I mean? I see where he's going with this. <laughs> so, I mean, it, you know, we, so as, you know, I, so as someone who had a birthday yesterday and please don't, don't, um, I don't <laughs> tell people about my birthday because I never, I never have good experiences around my birthday because <laughs> stop it. Um, I think he didn't want to ask. Well, no, yeah, he no. Want, he didn't want to be like, inevitably, <laughs> as I've, inevitably as I've gotten older, I've become to, as I was, when I was in my early teens and uh, late teens and early twenties, you know, I was highly individualistic and, solipsistic and i you know refuse to believe of, of an existence outside myself and as i've the the older i've got the more the less individualistic i've become and the more ingrained the belief in me has become that the only way we live is through our impact on others um, and our impact in the world more widely um you know in the end the collective effort that we all contribute to is what will be what will only live beyond an individual's life and um, and therefore it is a little bit meaningless individually. And, um, you know, in the same way that, that the Pequod is as an individual in, in the story, right? Like it's a contribution of all of that to, towards that struggle and towards that end. And it's why it's such an amazing metaphor that there's, um, in, uh, an individual loneliness in the whaler's life. And of course this made hilarity and in it's in, in it's fleeting interactions with others right the other ships that they come into contact with i mean sometimes they're so perfunctory and brief as to be almost 
hilarious if they weren't so bizarre and rude <laughs> and then sometimes so incredibly intimate. Um, well, the weird little facts is that like every ship has an individualized signal and there's like some great compendium of signals that is like com- that each captain has made a hold of so that you can distinguish any whaling ship from each other. Um, and, you know, there's just a kind of uh, a kind of beauty in to my mind as I've just begun to try to you know reconcile with with the fact that nothing really lives beyond the self and when we imagine right like literature right like like putting something down that that applies uh, t- uh that will take effect beyond what our lives are able to reach um you know literature is a way to kind of you know reach out from that um also if we like music i mean that's why we like music you know like you know, I love the Beatles and it's like four fucking British guys, you know, made an album over four weeks in, 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 in Liverpool, you know, and it's like that, that moment is encapsulated forever with us. Right. And, or as long as it lasts. And, um, you know, we, we only have those moments and, you know, something where, I mean, if we think about our best days, are they days that a lot or something really important happened or are they, our best day is something when like, quote unquote, nothing happened to us. And our experience uh, only is what dictates the meaning to us. Like sometimes our best days or our most impactful days are our worst days, in fact. And our best days are when like we just sit on a masthead and look out in the <laughs> ocean for hours with nothing to do. And, um, you know, touch that sublime, right? Like that mm-hmm. goal of I think that how we, we might call it heaven or we might call it God's uh, you know, God's essence on earth, or we uh, might call it, you know, a common shared experience of consciousness that we're all gifted to have together. Um, I don't know. Um, I could try writing a novel, but, uh, <laughs> but I don't know. The There's con- still time. I don't know the constitution for it. I don't have enough gin. There's not enough gin in this house for me to write a novel with. That's fixable. Yeah. Before we go. Um, oh, my God. So there are many renditions and interpretations and critiques of Moby Dick at a variety of levels. But none so fine. Um, <laughs> and probably what would be my favorite version of this book. <laughs> we're, we're about to find out. So this is a baby-lit storybook. Baby-lit. Herman <laughs> Melville's Moby Dick, retold by Mandy Archer. And... I think this is useful because if you wanted to compress the 500 or so pages of Moby Dick, I don't actually know how long the book is. Um, 23 hours. And this is one way you could do it. <laughs> is to the second. <laughs> and it's interesting to wonder what someone would consider valuable to a child from this book, hmm. which is why I wanted to see what Mandy Archer's take on this would be. Yeah. Can you read it in the way where you like show us the pictures on every page? I can. Thanks. I think my favorite part is there's no title page. They just jump in. Like oh. the, the inside cover is the first page of the book. <laughs> is this a board book? It's a board book. Call me Ishmael. <laughs> Weirdly enough, not how it starts. Get the fuck out of here. Wait, what's the first line? Environmental storytelling. Oh. It's, got it on its bag. Oh. it's got it on its bag. I was a sailor. I was tired of being on dry land. It was time to go back to the ocean. Okay. It's like the first three chapters. <laughs> I love it already. <laughs> yep. It's got the sprouter in with Aww. Peter Coffin's name right there. Very cool. The port was busy. I had to share my room with a stranger. Don't be afraid now. Queequeg here wouldn't harm a hair of your head. 
In just one night, Queequeg became my best friend. Whoa. There's a lot of subtext there. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's it's, what is omitted is just as important as what is written. Queequeg and I both wanted to join a whaling ship. The Pequod was looking for a crew. Some said Captain Ahab was moody and fierce. He was nowhere to be seen. For the first 30 chapters. (laughs) It's better to sail with a moody good captain than a laughing bad one. I like that just everyone's, every page they have one quote from the book. Awesome. (laughs) I got a picture of the Pequod, the masthead, and the prophet. Yep. Prophet Elijah. Oh my God, those pictures are hot. Oh, (laughs) The Pequod set sail on a cold Christmas day. The crew came from every corner of the globe. So at this point, my primary audio recorder had an aneurysm, and though I do have my backup audio for this, I'm going to omit the majority of our read through this picture book because as fun as it was in person, you do kind of need the visual reinforcement. It is 12 bucks on Amazon if you want to enjoy it yourself. Ishmael and his shipmates search the ocean far and wide. Will they ever find the white whale that sailors call Moby Dick? Tune in. <laughs> You'll find out in about 90 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> or in the case really of the book, did. 148 chapters. <laughs> H3 to 5. So. Really good key points. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad you found that. <laughs> yeah. The next time I have family in town, I'm going to borrow that book. It's really great addition to the podcast. Expose the youngins to the Hobby <laughs> Dick. <laughs> Get them hooked early. Maybe oh, absolutely. Okay, so bad after all. Have you ever read a pictorial uh, Bible version? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Have you read the manga version? Oh, my God. No, Is there I've, really? I've seen a comic it's book so Bible, good. but not specifically There's the one. There's a manga Bible? Yeah, that's awesome. It's so good. <laughs> I highly recommend it. It sounds good. Ugh. All right. Well, gang, we made it. Yeah, good talk, we did good talk, it. Good talk. <laughs> What's, what's the next book on the list? I feel like there's still so much more to discuss, though. Like, is there shit? So we've got to. I think we're good. We got to pick something. <laughs> we got to pick something big. I mean, not big, big like like lengthwise or anything, but we got to pick something like that comes with historical weight behind it. Um, I mean, that could be any one of a number of books that are not on my bookshelf because I don't have any books like that up there. We've got the Valkyria Chronicles art book. <laughs> Got the Wes Anderson collection. Well, anything, I mean, we should bring it back to more, you know, at least something in the last 30, 40 years, I guess, right? Like, I mean, does anyone, I like, I love Dondolillo's White Noise. Has anyone ever read Dondolillo or White Noise or anything? I mean, we could read Harry Potter. You just said you hadn't read it. I've never read a Harry Potter book, no. Okay. I, read, I watched the movies. I wonder how they hold up in a post 2016 environment. Yeah. <laughs> they do. I read them a couple. Yeah, it's like what happens to Mike last summer. Yeah, what happens if Voldemort actually won? You know, yeah. like post. Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> I guess, I think those are books that are will stand the test of time. Well, not well. It's the story is so good that it doesn't matter how bad the writing is. I think the writing's okay in Harry Potter. Um, she does dialogue really well, which I think sets a lot of writers apart when they mm-hmm. write when they write realistic dialogue. You don't like bad dialogue is so jarring. That it makes a book unreadable, and that's the best thing she does. And what about what about describing like the unreal parts of a real world, right? Like the magic of a, of the world. How do you find that depiction? Um, I would say 
she does a pretty terrible job of world building. Okay. Because there's a lot of things about the magical world that don't make sense if you think about them for about 10 seconds. Okay. Like, how are people poor? Yeah. <laughs> make anything. There's no way. Why is anybody poor. ugly when you can just physically mm. change your form permanently? Right. You know? Why? It's an allegory. Why does no one use a gun? You yeah, know, that would take out a lot of wizards a lot faster than Expelliarmus. Yeah. <laughs> and I can pull a trigger faster than you can say Expelliarmus. The one, so the one critique I read about that was that like the Ministry of Magic is like rationing magic. That there's like a there's like a set amount of magic in the world, and they like they harness like the, the Ministry is about like, like a fan theory that. or something. No, that's what I just but like internet maybe an internet it's video that I across or something. Also, like there's like no jobs. You either work for the Ministry of Magic or you teach at Hogwarts. <laughs> those that seems like, or you have a shop in Hogsmeade. Right. Yeah. I mean, that or, makes sense. or yeah, like there's there's nothing to like do as an adult wizard after you graduate. But then also people are weird. like preternaturally disposed to like a certain type of magic, like genetically speaking or something. Like people like like apart from like the sorting hat, right? Like the sorting hat is the idea that like this thing observes your essence and then places you sorts you into the world. All right, I think we actually do need to do this book. <laughs> All right. Well, pick the best one cuz my favorite movie, my favorite movie You get to start in the middle. <laughs> I'll Wikipedia that Jim. shit and I'll start with it. So upset. My favorite my favorite I've seen the movie. I don't know. <laughs> oh my god! I've seen the movie. My favorite, my favorite of the movies is the Prisoner of Azkaban. That's that? the best book. Okay, the best book. Okay, cool. I, like we could read that. I, the, and I think it's, uh, I think it's Lionel without Voldemort too. Yeah, but I love that movie. Oh, that's my favorite movie of the Harry Potters. All right. Well, no. I guess we got a book. Well, we don't have to do Harry Potter. No, no, no. But if, like, if we were to do I, it, if we were to do it, that would be the book. To do. You think that's the best, the best book too? Prisoner oh, Basketball. that's my favorite one. Okay, yours as well. That's my favorite one growing up. Yeah. Really? No sh- okay, well, there's a consensus here, right? I'm like, going to talk shit about Harry Potter on a podcast. <laughs> okay. I, we, I mean, all right, so we could do movie slash book review or something of that as well. Like, huh? But then, um... Yeah, there's a lot of things she does very poorly, but okay. there's the, the story itself is just so good. Well, if there's a book you would choose to review, what would it be... Well, I already... made the stand. I mean, you yeah. Yeah, yeah. your choice. I already picked. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so, okay... I haven't read it yet, and nobody has spoiled it for me yet. So if I tell you what book I'm about to read, don't spoil it. Can you? I promise. Yeah, I probably what? <laughs> David, I don't read. David's I don't good. Hear yeah. I do this podcast to convince me to read. Yeah, I don't read. Okay, but if you've already read it, don't spoil it. Um, so I haven't read the Count of Monte Cristo. Right and oh, no. So, oh no! But it's really, really long. No, yeah, I know. Yeah, uh, it's right I just, now, and it's old. But it's I just—it is old. Yeah, it's old and it's long, and I just down. I like. I've seen the movie. I, got the the I haven't seen the, the movie either because I want to read the book. Anyway, uh, so I got that with my other like free Audible credit, uh, and then I okay. and then I disabled my Audible account, <laughs> yeah, so I yeah. have it now. <laughs> and so that was going to be my next thing I was going to tackle, but it would take forever, and you know, so I'm not going to say like, oh, we should do that. I just know I'm going to read it at some point. Interesting. Okay, yeah. Patrick. I mean, if there was another one you'd recommend or something that everyone should read. Oh man, I don't know. Because um, I wouldn't really recommend a lot of the books I read because they're not like good literature. Good. No, no, I, just, I mean no, um, but just something that something I just that read the Princess Bride. You guys read that? William Goldman, yeah, no, yeah. that's good stuff. <laughs> I've, re- I've read the book and I've seen the movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The I mean, uh, awesome. Like my current favorite series is called The Dresden Files, but it has a lot of problems. Okay. Um, the main one of which is uh, it sucks. I, I think the <laughs> I think the, main, the main character is pretty clearly like an author avatar. 
like if I was a wizard, this is who I'd be. Okay. Um, and the misogyny is just really rampant and <laughs> unapologetic. Look, you, you got to go with the bad. You got to cringe through it because, like, <laughs> like anything right every, before nineteen forty, every woman's a ten out of ten, and they all want to sleep with them. Nice. And you're like, okay, that's a common theme in Irish writers. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know, and so if you can get past the parts that really suck about it, the story's really good. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> you know, I, I can I can recognize the shitty parts of mm-hmm. the things I enjoy. Um, it's not about looking past it. It's about just. Accepting that that Looking part sucks. Great at it. You know he could do that much differently. He, you know, yeah. I think if I was his wife, I'd be like, "Is there something wrong with me?" <laughs> <laughs> you know, why are all these women so hot in your books, and why do you bang them all? Yeah. Spoilers, I guess. Spoilers. <laughs> All right, well, we'll pick one of those, and then we'll reconvene in three to 12 months and <laughs> see how it goes. Absolutely. Cool. Well, it's not pictures of files. Yeah. They're good books, but they're not worth, like, talking about. <laughs> Settled. Okay. We're going to shut this thing down. Kim, thank you for joining us for the first time. Yeah, this was fun. Thanks. <gasps> Ryan, Patrick, a part of Magnation Law. Good morning. Welcome.